Welcome to Data Dialogues from Equifax, a podcast about how data-driven insights can power smarter business decisions. Welcome to the Data Dialogues podcast brought to you by Equifax. My name is Rissa Redden, and I am your host. Given the economic disruptions that have come about as a result of the pandemic, it's no surprise that we're seeing more and more headlines about cryptocurrency. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to get into the topic with an expert. I am joined today by Rachel Cannon, partner at Steptoe & Johnson, LLP. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Rissa. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. For our listeners today, could you please introduce yourself and give a bit of your background? Sure. So I am a partner at Steptoe & Johnson, which is a large global law firm. My background is as a federal prosecutor. I spent over a decade uh, prosecuting federal crimes in the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office. And now I practice in the area of white-collar criminal defense and litigation and also cryptocurrencies, hence our being together today to discuss this fascinating topic. And I mostly focus on the regulatory aspects surrounding cryptocurrencies. And how did you first get interested in cryptocurrency? What piqued your interest and led to the specialization that you have now? So it's funny, I live in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and before the pandemic, used to always take the train into work every day commuting. And in some ways, I always felt that that was kind of like a black hole of lost time. And so I would, you know, read the newspaper and try to do other things. And I was reading the Wall Street Journal on the train ride in one day, and I remember this very vividly, because I remember reading an article on cryptocurrencies. This was probably in 2017. And I thought to myself when I read the article, this is fascinating. This is another form of money that has basically sprung up out of nowhere, that is kind of taking the world by storm and is transforming the way that the entire globe does business. And so the immediate question that came to mind was, is this going to be something that's here to stay or is this going to be a fad? And I remember, I think, going home that night or, you know, shortly thereafter and talking to my parents on the phone and telling them how interesting I thought this was. And they were like, crypto what? I mean, they could barely pronounce the word. They were like, it's a fake, you know, it's a digital form of money. You know, like, why would anybody do this? And when I would talk to friends and colleagues, most people kind of had the same perception. And so I really thought, well, we'll see if this goes anywhere or is just a fad. And here we are in 2022. It's definitely not a fad. When you have regulators like the Federal Reserve looking at how we can bring cryptocurrencies into the mainstream U.S. financial system, I think that's a pretty good sign that cryptocurrencies are here to stay. And Rachel, I think that you are spot on. It is fascinating. I think you're spot on. There are a lot of people that don't quite understand cryptocurrency. Can you break it down for us a little bit, sort of maybe a little bit of how cryptocurrency got started and a little bit about what it is? Sure. So I think in the most basic terms, cryptocurrency really is like another form of money. So just as you have cash and you have credit cards and you have checkbooks and you have all these different systems for paying bills, for example, cryptocurrency can function in exactly that kind of way. It's kind of evolved into different uses. There are now NFTs and there's all sorts of other things we can talk about, but at base, A lot of cryptocurrency is essentially like a form of money. And it really came into being around 2008. Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency. It's, you know, still, I think, probably the most well known. It's a little unclear who founded Bitcoin. It's always been attributable to 
a gentleman named Satoshi Nakamoto, but it's unclear if he's a real person, if he's like a conglomerate of people, who exactly he is, if it is a he. But 2008 is when Bitcoin came into being. And it came in response to the crash of the financial markets and sort of the perception that mainstream currencies tied to, you know, U.S. government really weren't as great, perhaps, as they're cracked up to be. And now here we are more than a decade later, there are, I think, over 1,500 different forms of cryptocurrency, which is, I think, about almost 10 times as many forms as fiat currency. There are roughly 180 forms of fiat currency that are recognized around the world. And we are seeing more and more businesses evolving to accept payment in cryptocurrency, people obtaining cryptocurrency wallets and using it as a form of payment for everyday goods and services. And then we're now seeing kind of a rise in what I'll call tokens and things that you can do with tokens. Tokens being you know, something similar to cryptocurrency, but that can function as a like a reward system or non-fungible tokens, which we can talk about, which can be tied to digital works of art. So it's kind of branched off into all these different directions. But for just simple purposes, for purposes of talking today, I like to think of it as another form of money. Perfect. And you mentioned that businesses are getting into cryptocurrency. Who else is looking at cryptocurrency or is getting more engaged with cryptocurrency and why? So I think the question almost is, who isn't? Mm. So we're, you know, we've got all kinds of people calling us wanting to know, can they accept cryptocurrency, payment in cryptocurrency? You know, what are the risks associated with that? Do they have to kind of do anything special to make sure they don't run afoul of various laws or regulations? Are there different regulations in different jurisdictions? But you see all kinds of service providers accepting payment in cryptocurrency. Steptoe, for example, accepts payment in cryptocurrency. You see mainstream kind of consumer goods accepting payment in cryptocurrency. You know, you can go to overstock.com and buy things in cryptocurrency. A lot of the newspapers, you can sign up for subscriptions in cryptocurrency. You can go to Subway and pay in cryptocurrency. So it really is kind of becoming more and more mainstream. And I don't know if you've seen these kiosks. They're like uh, cryptocurrency kiosks now, you know, in malls and gas stations that almost are like ATMs. So it really is becoming more and more mainstream. Is it quite mainstream? Probably not. I mean, we don't think of cryptocurrency like we think of our credit cards or our checkbooks. But I think we're headed in that direction. And when you're approached and asked about the risks of cryptocurrency, what do you say? What are the risks associated there? Or what are the things that people should be mindful of prior to accepting cryptocurrency as a form of payment? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first and foremost, it depends exactly what your business is and kind of what you want to do, you know, with cryptocurrency and how you plan to accept it and what goods you're providing or services in exchange for cryptocurrency. So you know, we have to kind of take a holistic look at exactly what the factual picture is. But, you know, some of the concerns that have evolved around cryptocurrencies, which are fair, you know, have to do with the fact that it's got this reputation and perception as being a tool for criminals. So that's kind of one, you know, one issue which we can talk about. And then another issue is hacking. 
because cryptocurrencies are stored on the blockchain, which is kind of like the digital ether, you know, you do have to be very careful about hacking. And unless you've got the right kind of system set up at your company or you're working with a reputable exchange who has secure wallets, people who kind of hold and carry and transact in cryptocurrencies are always vulnerable to hacking. But of course, you know, everybody's vulnerable to hacking, even if you're not dealing with cryptocurrencies. But just going back to the, you know, is cryptocurrencies, you know, for criminals, that's, I think, kind of a bad rap that cryptocurrency has got that stems from its early days. To be sure, criminals have historically enjoyed using cryptocurrency as ransomware, you know, as a way of disguising the source of funds for things as part of money laundering schemes. So those criticisms are definitely fair. And that's why we see the Department of Justice creating a cryptocurrency task force, for example, to combat all of those problems. But the fact of the matter is most money laundering is done with regular money, you know, the kind that you get out of a bank, not with cryptocurrencies. And as cryptocurrencies have kind of become more and more mainstream, and as they've evolved, and as people have begun to understand how they're used and the compliance risks associated with them, we're kind of developing better and better tools to prevent them from being used in nefarious ways. Rachel, you touched a little bit on sort of the myth of cryptocurrency. Are there any other myths around cryptocurrency that need to be explored or that we need to be more focused on the reality versus the myth of cryptocurrency? Yeah, I think the other big myth that's out there is is that it is a fad and that it's going to go away. I don't think it's going to go away for a couple of reasons. So first, I think people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and older You know, I think it's hard for a lot of people in that age group, particularly Americans, to really see the value and benefits of cryptocurrency. Because, for example, we live in America. It's got a stable government. We have a stable economy. The U.S. dollar isn't subject to wild swings and inflation. You know, we're confident that whatever political party is in power, when we put our money in our bank, we don't worry that that party is going to swoop in and take it. So for us, it seems kind of ridiculous to have an alternative money system. But if you live in a country that doesn't have a stable government or a stable economy, or where the currency your country uses is subject to wild swings in inflation, and it costs, you know, a million whatevers to buy a gallon of milk, then it all of a sudden becomes very appealing to be able to tap into a cryptocurrency which you can essentially buy with an iPhone and use at, you know, stores and places. And that is much more stable. So that's, you know, kind of one reason I think cryptocurrencies are really not going anywhere. Because whatever the, you know, thoughts of mainstream Americans are globally, it's just kind of revolutionized the rest of the world. The other reason I think cryptocurrencies are not going anywhere, and again, this is kind of more directed towards the age comment, is There's a whole generation behind, you know, me that enjoys gaming. And anybody who has young kids knows, you know, one of the biggest struggles you face as a parent is to prevent your kid from getting addicted to video games and trying to monitor and police video games. But people under 30 are very familiar with what I'll call the metaverse and this idea of, you know, having 
an alternative form of money out there, like Roblox, for example. That just kind of makes intuitive sense to young people. And so we have this whole generation of young people who spend their free time engaging with the metaverse, transacting in, you know, units of money on the metaverse. And to them, that all seems normal and they enjoy that and it's fun. And so when you have kind of these young gamers and techies who are very used to the idea of virtual money, it's easy to understand why they would want to kind of use virtual money in their day-to-day lives. And for that reason, I think that's just going to continue to be a driving force to fold cryptocurrencies into the mainstream, that entire generation. That's fascinating. And I know when we were talking about this podcast, Rachel, you had shared with me an example that I would love to revisit with you. And it was essentially a community, and I'm not remembering the country in which this took place, but it was a community that was concerned about or perhaps didn't trust a bank that was located in this community and so sought to identify an alternative. Could you share that example? Absolutely. So this was actually, I read about this in another Wall Street Journal article. So this was a community in Russia, a small village in Russia, who was really struggling with the banking system because the bank was essentially offering these villagers loans at extortionate rates. And this wasn't an extremely wealthy village, you know, out in the middle of Russia to begin with. And so to get around these problems, they essentially came up with their own form of cryptocurrency and began using that. And they traded it for goods and services, you know, milk, home repair, whatever. And they solved their problems that way. And they got around the mainstream Russian financial system by coming up with their own cryptocurrency. And that's really kind of the mentality and the motivation, I think, that lies a lot at the core of what cryptocurrency is about for a lot of people. There's, you know, different reasons for different people. But you think about all the places in the world that are like that, that have people who are being essentially excluded from the mainstream financial sector for one reason or another, and people don't want to be excluded. And this is a way around that. It's also interesting, you know, this is why a lot of governments, kind of traditionally repressive governments, are banning cryptocurrency. Like, you know, you see in China, for example. And the stated reason by these types of governments is always that, oh, well, cryptocurrencies are unsafe and they're unstable and people could lose their money if, you know, they invest in cryptocurrencies. And yes, there's certainly some truth to that. Cryptocurrency can be very volatile. But the real reason those governments want to ban cryptocurrencies is because when people spend their money buying Bitcoin and not the, you know, the Chinese yuan or, you know, form of currency, it takes away money and power from the central government. And what oppressive governments all over the world are seeing is that they're losing control through things like cryptocurrency. Because again, you know, people don't want to be excluded from life by repressive governments. And so they're finding ways around that. And one way is through cryptocurrency. Rachel, I've read a bit about blockchain sort of versus cryptocurrency in that blockchain is here to stay. And it's really the value that we're going to see as a result of cryptocurrency. Do you have any perspective on that? I mean, I know that it's one is leveraging the other, but do you have a perspective on the maybe the merits or the value of each? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, as you know, they certainly do go hand in hand. So cryptocurrency, just to you know, be very blunt and basic, it's not like you get a coin 
you know, it's sort of, it's a digital form of money and it's stored on the blockchain, which again is, you know, sort of like the internet, but not exactly. It's like the digital ether. And the blockchain has many, many wonderful use cases. And so, you know, for example, if you think of the blockchain, I like to think of the blockchain to just kind of put it again in very basic terms. Like if you think of Google Documents, where, you know, you have a Google document and all sorts of people who are connected to it can update it and everyone sees in real time how it's updating. It's kind of similar to that, except that the difference is with Google Documents, Google has the original and in theory, you know, could control the original, not that they would probably ever want to bother to do that. But with the blockchain, again, in theory, there's no central person who really controls it. You know, everybody who joins the blockchain is part of it. Everybody gets these updates in real time. Things that happen on the blockchain don't get deleted. They never really go away. And so it's a wonderful system for things like records, things like healthcare records, for example. I mean, there have been so many articles about how the blockchain could transform healthcare for poor people. Because, you know, one of the problems poor people face when they go to the ER is they don't carry their medical records with them everywhere they go. And so it's hard for doctors to sometimes know what their medical history is, you know, what their allergies are. And if there were something like the blockchain where that information could be entered and hospitals could be in a consortium where they all had access to it, that problem would be solved. I mean, that's just one example of why the blockchain, you know, is wonderful. Another example is with food transportation. You know, sometimes when you see these outbreaks of, you know, like listeria and lettuce, for example, it's a big deal and a big task to try and figure out where did the contaminated head of lettuce come from, especially if it was halfway around the country. Well, when you have something like the blockchain that tracks, you know, farm to table where the lettuce was picked and where it was stored and where it was transferred, and that was kind of all tracked digitally through the blockchain, then you could easily figure that out. So I guess the long answer is, I don't think the concept of the blockchain and storing digital data that way is going to go anywhere because it's just too powerful and too useful. But I don't think cryptocurrencies are going anywhere either. And, you know, they really do kind of work together hand in glove. But for all the reasons we talked about, because of cryptocurrencies' power to kind of step outside traditional financial regimes... I think they're just really, you know, potent items that are here to stay. Great. We talked a little bit about with cryptocurrency, sort of the myth or the potential drawbacks of cryptocurrency. Anything that you would add? So another thing that I think makes cryptocurrency tricky for the average consumer is its volatility. It's nice to know if you have one Bitcoin, is that going to buy you a carton of milk, or is that going to buy you a new car? And if you have expectations, you know, about one or the other, it can be a little shocking, you know, to find out you're sort of in a different category. And of course, you've got kind of all the usual concerns that surround volatile forms of money. You wouldn't want your grandmother investing her last bit of life savings into Bitcoin, because she might wake up one day and find that it's worth close to nothing. So, you know, I think you do want to have some level of education around how cryptocurrency works, you know, before you buy it, 
or you want to work with somebody who understands how it works. Of course, there are a number of financial professionals who are very sophisticated and use Bitcoin to hedge against other investments. I mean, it's, you know, supposed to be fantastic for that kind of financial strategizing as well. But for the average consumer, you do have to be careful because it is so volatile. And it's really interesting if you, I've seen a number of these graphs that plot out kind of the volatility of Bitcoin, you know, over the course of a year versus the volatility of a traditional currency like the dollar. And, you know, the dollar just kind of barely moves up and down, but Bitcoin has these wild, you know, swings. And so if you're planning to get rich quick through Bitcoin, I mean, that very well might happen, but you could also get poor very quickly through Bitcoin also. So I think until, you know, that volatility is maybe somehow addressed, it can be, you know, just kind of a risky investment, if you will. And actually, you know, if we're kind of on this topic, one form of cryptocurrency that has kind of come into being sort of to address that concern are things like stable coins. So now, you know, in the 1500 or so cryptocurrencies that are out there, there are these forms called stable coins, whose value is tied usually to something more stable, like, for example, the US dollar. So one stable coin would have a value of $1. And if you wanted to, in theory, cash in, you know, your one stable coin, you should know that it, it's worth $1. There's other types of stable coins, and some are pegged to other cryptocurrencies, and some are pegged to, you know, a very complex algorithm. But, you know, now we're seeing the evolution of cryptocurrencies, you know, to come up with kind of solutions to these concerns around volatility. So I think that's an interesting area, you know, to focus on. In addition to stablecoins, I know you had mentioned NFTs a little bit earlier. Could you talk a little bit about them? I mean, they have certainly taken on so much interest as it relates to art and art being sold as an NFT. Could you comment a little bit on that? And I probably misused the language just now, but please correct me. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And NFTs, this is another topic that I just love to read about and think about. You know, so what are NFTs? So the acronym stands for non-fungible token. And it's sort of like it's a token that gives somebody an ownership right in something digital on the blockchain. And often nowadays, it's a piece of art. So we can use that example. So if I had an NFT, if I owned an NFT, if I bought one, because I wanted it to give me an ownership right in a digital piece of art, I would own this kind of digital asset. And it would be pegged to some piece of, for example, digital art that an artist had created. And then depending on the, you know, the contract or the nature of the thing you bought, you know, the artist often retains the copyright to the piece of art, but I could look at the art whenever I wanted to, I could sell it, I could trade it for some other kind of NFT. And it's just interesting because again, it's like kind of normal things you do and buy and see, but they're the digital version. And, you know, one story I love, there's an artist called Beeple, B-E-E-P-L-E, and he sold an NFT that was pegged to a digital work of art that he had created through Christie's, I think it was last year, 2021, or like early 2021, and that sold for $69 million, you know, which is more than 
many Monet's cost. And the artwork itself had an, its own interesting story. He had kind of created one digital piece of art every day for, I don't know, like 13 years or something, and then kind of amalgamated them all into this great big piece. And that's what was auctioned at Christie's. And if you Google it, Christie's has this fun video of him and his family as they're watching the auction price go up. And he's like, oh my God, you know, I can't believe someone's going to pay, you know, 1 million, 5 million, 20 million. And then it was $69 million. And, you know, the family, his family just looks like this normal American family. And they're like, wow, you know, it's just, it's a really cute thing to see everybody's kind of excitement. And that's also another thing that has just kind of blown open the doors of opportunity for people. I saw a really interesting interview with an artist in Nigeria who does these digital works of art and sells them, you know, as NFTs. And he was saying, you know, 10 years ago, before the internet came along and before these NFTs came into being, he would have just simply never been discovered. He would have just been some obscure artist in the middle of Nigeria who never would have had a global platform and nobody would have ever known who he was or what he did. And he would have probably barely eked out a living. And now because of the global digital nature of the blockchain and NFTs, he's become a well-known artist. He can support himself financially. His pieces sell for lots of money. He's been discovered. And it's just kind of yet another example of people who probably historically would have been somewhat excluded, you know, from mainstream art world or however you want to call it, now are a part of things because of the way this digital economy works. And so I think those aspects to it are just fascinating and really inspiring. You know, a book that I love that you just reminded me of is called The $12 Million Stuffed Shark, The Curious Economics of Contemporary Art. It's a fabulous book. And I feel like the book needs another edition in order to incorporate NFTs and how NFTs are taking on a new role in the ecosystem. But it's a fabulous book. And it's one that I recommend often from a brand and marketing perspective. But it's a fascinating look at certainly the contemporary art world. Oh, that sounds great. And you know, that's another big use case for NFTs. I mean, they're huge kind of marketing objects. I think McDonald's is using NFTs, Coca-Cola is using NFTs. A lot of the luxury brands are using NFTs, athletes are using NFTs, singers, because it's kind of a fun and different way for people to have an ownership interest in something interesting, different, exciting, glamorous, and it can make people feel a part of things in this very unique way. So everybody wants to kind of, you know, jump on the bandwagon and it's just really fun and crazy to see what types of things are being sold as NFTs. You know, somebody's first tweet, a copy of an old song. Again, you know, these pieces of art, it's really interesting. I agree. It's very interesting. And jumping back, I know we talked a little bit earlier about blockchain. I'm, you know, reading a bunch about musicians and blockchain. And certainly as a musician, it's difficult to ensure that you're always paid for your work when it's appearing or being yes. played in the background of a TV show or there are numerous examples. And that blockchain has the potential to really ensure that there is that connection between the music and the artist from an ownership or from a payment standpoint, which I think is fascinating. Absolutely. I think the artistic community must be one of the communities that loves the blockchain more than anyone else. Because exactly as you note, 
It allows them to track their royalties, to know when their items have changed hands. You know, if you sell something to someone and forbid it from being reproduced, you can tell with the digital item when it is being reproduced. So the artistic community, I think, is really going to benefit from the blockchain for sure. Rachel, I want to switch gears just a little bit. We talked about sort of the benefits or opportunities of cryptocurrency and then a little bit around the drawbacks of cryptocurrency. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you anticipate or what you are starting to see from a regulatory standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. So from a regulatory standpoint, kind of as you would expect with cryptocurrency, it is literally the Wild West. And that is because we have all the regulators kind of using old models to try and regulate a very new and emerging technology. And so these old kind of ways of thinking about how to regulate things and how things should be structured and what you look for and how you assess them, they don't really work with something like a cryptocurrency because it just doesn't quite fit into any of the old models. I mean, it's money, yes, but it's not you know backed by a government. It's just got all these kind of weird quirks to it that make it difficult to regulate. And so what we're seeing is the whole alphabet soup of regulators kind of jumping into the fray. Many of them are trying to and are asserting jurisdiction. And they're saying, well, you know, cryptocurrencies are really this. They're a security, says the SEC, for example. And so we should be in charge of regulating them. And here we've got this old test called the Howey test. And if you, you know, analyze these 12 factors, it'll tell you whether or not cryptocurrencies really are a security and whether or not they have to be registered with the SEC. You know, so you see the Securities and Exchange Commission saying that. And then you see the CFTC, for example, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission saying, oh, no, 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 no. Cryptocurrencies are commodities, and we regulate commodities. And so really, we're in charge of this burgeoning industry and, you know, making sure consumers aren't defrauded and setting up the guardrails. And then you see people like the IRS stepping in and saying, no, 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 actually, cryptocurrency is property, and we tax it as property. And now you'll see in your tax returns that you file in April, there's going to be a question on there on the 1040 asking if you have essentially uh, transacted in cryptocurrencies over the past year. And so the IRS is really, you know, trying to get a handle on cryptocurrencies. And then we have people like the Treasury Department saying, you know, we have a role to play here. And so for all you companies who accept payment in cryptocurrencies, you know, you need to be very careful that you aren't accepting payment from countries we are blocking Americans from doing business with, you know, like Iran or Syria. And so they want to step in and say, how are you company screening for that? How are you checking to make sure that you're not doing business with a sanctioned country? And so this is why it's very complicated. And we get a lot of calls from, you know, these very enterprising, often brilliant, you know, young people who say, well, I want to start a website and I want to create my own cryptocurrency exchange. I want to do this and I want to do that. You know, can I just go ahead and do that? And the answer is no. <laughs> you, I mean, well, I mean, you can, but, you know, there's, that'd be really risky because you have to be very careful when you start dealing in new forms of money as to, you know, what exactly you're doing with that. 
you know, what you're telling people about what you're doing with that, who you're allowing to be your customers, you know, what sorts of checks you are having on your customers to make sure that your customers really are who they say they are. And it's a very complex regulatory soup of regulators that are involved. And again, one of the things that's so challenging about it is there's not really a playbook for this. It's not like you can, you know, look up, well, how how did, uh, you know, the SEC deal with this 10 years ago? Well, Well, they didn't because cryptocurrencies weren't around 10 years ago. So you're kind of making novel arguments and you're, again, looking to these old models, which sometimes kind of fit well and sometimes don't. And then, you know, I left off the states. There's a, there's a whole state overlay. Um, some states are very friendly to cryptocurrencies like Wyoming. They really want to encourage cryptocurrency businesses to come to their state and, you know, hang out a digital shingle, if you will. So they're passing laws that, that are very friendly. And then you have other states like New York, which are much more kind of consumer protection focused. And it's more involved to get different types of cryptocurrency related licenses. There's more scrutiny over cryptocurrency businesses. And it's more challenging to kind of navigate in, in a state like New York because there's a lot of scrutiny. And you know, they would say appropriately so. I mean, we're the largest city in the, you know, in the country, and we've got to look out for people and make sure people aren't getting ripped off. And so we're going to take a close look at anything involving cryptocurrencies. Rachel, what does the future of cryptocurrency look like from your vantage point with your expertise in the area? Well, I think it's only going to grow. I think we're going to see more clear guidance coming out. You know, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the Federal Reserve, they started something kind of akin to a task force last year that said they're going to be studying cryptocurrencies and kind of evaluating how they can be folded into the mainstream U.S. financial system. And there was an article this morning that talked about how now they're really making progress on that front. And we're seeing more and more governments coming up with their own digital forms of currency. This is in the works in the UK, it's in the works in China, and it's really in the works here in the US. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see what that looks like. And how is that going to work with the US dollar? And is it simply going to be a digital version of the US dollar? Are there going to be effectively two currencies in every country? Is you know the old mainstream version of currency going to essentially die out? I don't know. These are all questions we'll have to see. But I don't think there's any doubt that digital currency is going to be the next form of money everywhere, including in the U.S. And it's just a matter of when, and it's just a matter, a question of, you know, what exactly is it going to look like? And Rachel, for people that want to get smarter on cryptocurrency, you'd mentioned that you like the Wall Street Journal. Are there any other sources that you have for information on cryptocurrency? Well, the good news is, I mean, I think there's probably whatever paper you read, if it's a major national newspaper, there's an article on cryptocurrency almost every day. I particularly love the Wall Street Journal because they often have two articles per day. They have reporters who, you know, kind of specialize in this area. And 
follow, you know, trends in this space. So I think if you really want to kind of bone up on cryptocurrencies and see how they're developing, the Wall Street Journal is a good place for that. But the Washington Post is another newspaper that has a lot of cryptocurrency articles. Bloomberg has a lot uh, of cryptocurrency articles. And there are some interesting books in this space. I'll have to send you those titles offline. But there's definitely kind of more and more books coming out that are written for more mainstream readers. It's pretty easy to get yourself educated. Rachel, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Any last comments or thoughts before we sign off? Just that I hope people will be open to all the exciting possibilities that cryptocurrencies can bring. I know, you know, for many of us, particularly even I'm in my late 40s, people in our age group think it's not something they have to bother with and they don't understand the attraction. But it's really about opening up the world's economy and connecting people and allowing people to participate that is at the root of what cryptocurrencies have to offer. Thank you. And one last question for you, Rachel, for anyone who would like to connect with you to learn more, where can they find you? Rcannon at Steptoe.com. Great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us for today's Data Dialogues and for this fascinating conversation. Thank you, Rissa. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Data Dialogues from Equifax. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified of future episodes and leave us a review. To keep our legal team happy, we'd like to remind you that nothing in this podcast is legal advice, and we recommend to always consult with your own legal representative to ensure your data use is handled properly. Also, the opinions and views expressed in the podcast are not intended as hard facts and advice. They're also not necessarily the views of Equifax. Equifax.